welcome to FBN this morning. If you have your Bibles, get those open to 2 Timothy chapter 2. If you do not have a Bible, there's a black one in the seat back in front of you. Grab it and get to page 1055 uh, so you can follow along with us and track what we're doing and what we're reading and understand that uh, we're not talking about my opinion today, which is irrelevant, uh, but we're actually looking at the Word of God. And I want to thank each and every one of you for being here today. Uh, if you're a guest, I especially want to greet you. I know how hard it is to try something new. And uh, if you have not ever filled out a guest card for us um, and, and turned it in at the, at the welcome desk out front, I would strongly encourage you to do that. We have a gift uh, for you coming today and just want to get to be able to connect with you and get to know you a little better. Um, and so please uh, take us up on that. Secondly, before we jump into this, just a personal invite from me to all of you. Um, if you've never attended a new members class here at FBN, there's one tonight at 5 o'clock. Uh, I think Brandon already mentioned to you, but it's a great chance uh, for you, even if you're not interested in membership yet. Uh, to just kind of understand sort of the inner workings of this place, uh, why we do the things we do, why we have the values we have, um, kind of get to know the staff at a little deeper level, some elders show up every now and then. So uh, it's, it's a great opportunity for you just kind of go, go deeper in your experience here, and we'd love uh, to have you tonight. If you haven't done it, uh, we'll feed you. Um, and so I believe there's a sign-up sheet out there, right? So the sign-up sheet out uh, by the welcome desk, if you want to sign up, so make sure we have enough food for you. Uh, we'd love to have you here at 5 o'clock tonight. Um, other than that, I'm going to ask you to join me in a word of prayer as we jump into this passage. So, Father, we are grateful uh, for everything that we've already got to do today, Lord, for uh, life and for breath in our lungs and for the ability to gather and uh, the chance to worship you, the chance to witness baptism, God, the chance to, to even open your word and, and read from it, uh, free from, from worry or threat or persecution. God, all these things are things that we give thanks for. And as we turn our attention now to your word, God, we... we Trust implicitly in you. We know it will not return to you void. And so we ask that you would be the one who uh, moves and speaks and encourages and, and equips and convicts that you uh, would be the one that draws people to yourself and we get all the glory from this. And we ask this all in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Well, I can still vividly remember proposing to Corinne. I can remember all the steps that led up to it, all the planning. I remember uh, coming up with some really lame excuse to drive over to Ohio and ask her dad for his blessing. I remember reserving the spot. I remember planning each detail. I remember getting the ring and, and keeping the actual night a surprise. And, but, but the entire time, right, the entire time this was all getting set up, there was one thing that I was counting on. There was one thing that I was banking on. There was one thing I was sure of. That no matter what details fell into place and what did, no matter how it worked according to plan or didn't, I was certain that she would say yes. Because to quote Michael Scott, I'm a catch and I won't be the one that got away, right? <laughs> Just kidding, I'm not a catch, right? Sir, this is a Wendy's, right? Um, for those of you who get that line, I've, you're with me for the rest of the sermon now, right? But no matter what, right, no matter what happened, I was certain because here's a novel idea, we'd actually talked about it. We talked about our future in advance. We'd, we'd, I, I'd mentioned, hey, if I ever proposed to you, would you say yes or no, right? Because that's, that's kind of a big deal. So you got to have that yes before you put it out there. And apparently this needs to be said, that you have to have that assurance. And I mention this because in the age of cell phone cameras and the internet and social media, there's a whole lot more and more failed proposals out there that often are occurring in very public places for a whole bunch of people to see, then they're recorded and put on the internet for the entire world to see. These are in malls and in sporting events and concerts where they, these guys do these grand public gestures. Everything goes according to plan, except what? Except the yes. And so here's some free advice for any of you young men who are not yet married. Make sure you've got the yes first, all right? Now get it if you want to keep part of the experience a surprise, right? But goodness, talk about it. Right, make sure you're on the same page. You, you, you don't want to put yourself out there like that, especially if anybody's going to see it. 
Plan A needs to be that she's going to say yes, and you can't have a plan B, okay? I would argue that there are things, a handful of things in life, that their importance sort of demands certainty. Things that you have so much writing on them that ambiguity or uncertainty just shouldn't be in the equation. Uh, Julian Edelman, I don't know if you've ever heard of him. He's a former NFL player. He played his entire career for the New England Cheating Patriots. That's their official name. Um, <laughs> A couple weeks ago, he bet $100,000, at least is what he claims, he bet $100,000 that the Patriots and Buccaneers would meet each other in the Super Bowl. That is a stupid bet, right? Even if it had worked, which by the way, it didn't, right? Last week, uh, the Patriots lost, so an angel got their wings, and, and so even if it had paid, that would have been an incredibly stupid bet. Why? Because that's way too much money to put on something that you can't be certain of. But here's the thing. There is a bet, if you will, if you want to follow me with that language. There's a bet that I have made that I have a whole lot more than $100,000 riding on. And I'm going to argue there's going to be a lot of people in this room who've made the same bet too. That we've put so much on the line that, that, that what we are trusting absolutely must come through or we're in deep, deep trouble. And that's why I'm excited to look at today's passage because in today's passage in 2 Timothy 1, we get to read words from a man who is fully convinced that he's about to die. Right? And so he's, he's going to be killed. Shortly after I write this letter, he's going to be killed for believing and proclaiming in Jesus. And so the Apostle Paul, the writer of this letter, has, has put everything on Jesus. Right? Just, if you don't know his life story, just know he's, he's given Jesus his life. He's given Jesus his health. He's given Jesus his freedom as he's writing from prison here. And he's about to trust Jesus with his death and eternity. And it makes you wonder, for Paul, was there ever a plan B? Right? At, at, at the end of all that, is there a shred of, of ambiguity or uncertainty or doubt? Does Paul regret any of the suffering that he's had to endure, all the cost he's had to pay for this? Or... Has what he found in Jesus been enough to sustain him and withhold him and strengthen him and deepen his resolve? Because you see, to trust someone or something with your life and with your freedom and with your eternity, that someone or something better be up to it. They better be worth it. They better be capable of it. And what you're going to hear from Paul this morning, I promise you what you'll hear from me and what you've already heard from all of us in song today is that Jesus Christ is worth it. He's up to it. And he's capable of it. And so I'm going to invite Drew Allman up to read today's passage for you. We're going to study verses 11 and 12 today, but for context, he's going to start in verse 9. So he's going to read 2 Timothy 1, verses 9 through 12. And if you're physically capable, would you please stand with Drew for the reading of God's word today? Thanks, buddy. Good morning. He has saved us and called us with a holy calling. Not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. This has now been made evident through the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. For this gospel, I was appointed a herald, apostle, and teacher, and that is why I suffer these things. But I am not ashamed, because I know whom I have believed and I'm persuaded that he is able to guard what has been entrusted to me until that day. Thank you, Drew. You guys can have a seat. Please keep your Bibles open right there to that passage, 2 Timothy 1. And like I said, we're going we're gonna to zero in on verses 11 and 12. But we had Drew start in verse 9 for context. And context is one of those things that's so important, right? If you want to know the three most important things to understanding and applying and interpreting a, a biblical passage, it's context, context, and context. 
right? And so it's so important. I hope that by the end of this letter, you're just going to get sick of me keep resetting it up for you. Um, 2 Timothy is a letter from the Apostle Paul to Timothy. Okay, Paul is writing from a Roman prison, and he is going to die soon. And so he, Timothy is a young man that he has mentored, that he has poured into, he's vested heavily, and then he's sent him out in ministry. Timothy, at the, at this time, the writing of this letter, is still at Ephesus, where he was when we studied 1 Timothy. Right? And this is the final letter that Paul is going to write to Timothy. In fact, of all the letters he writes in the New Testament, this is the last one, because he dies shortly after it. And so early on in the letter, as we've gone through this chapter, we've started to notice that there is a measure of concern that Paul has, right? He, he's worried for Timothy. He's worried that after he's gone, that Timothy might lose a little bit of steam, right? He's worried that after he's gone, Timothy might fall back into a, a comfortable, safer, easier life than, than what Paul has done and what Paul has lived. And so he's reminded him so far in this chapter, number one, first to, to rekindle or fan into flame the gift that God has given him. Right, for ministry. Then he's told him in verse 8 that God has not, in his Holy Spirit, he does not give us a spirit of fear or timidity or cowardice, but one of power and love and sound judgment. And he leads that right into verse 8. So Timothy, here's what you can do. Don't be ashamed. Don't be ashamed of Jesus. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. Don't be ashamed of me for suffering for these things. And don't be ashamed of suffering for it. In fact, lean into suffering for this gospel. And then verses 9 and 10 is what last week Adam covered for us. And Adam covered for us the, the immense, amazing gospel of Jesus Christ. Right? The, 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 the good news that is only good because the bad news is so bad. And the bad news is that, that we are, are all sinners who've fallen short of the glory of God. And that's not a small thing, that, that, that we are actually spiritually dead in our sins, according to Ephesians 2. That, that, that we, the wrath of God is stored up and waiting for us. Colossians 1, that we are actually hostile towards God's in our thought and actions, and that we are bound for hell, and there's nothing in and of ourselves that can save us from that fate. And so God took, sent Jesus to step into our form, to take our, the human body, right, to, take, to, to become fully man, and to step into our place on the cross. And on the cross, Jesus took on God's wrath for sin when he brutally suffered and died. And on the third day, he rose again, to offer the fullness of forgiveness and eternal life to any who believe in him. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the good news that is found only in him. Which brings us to verse 11, because the first three words of verse 11 are what? For this gospel. Right? So this gospel is the foundation right, of the closing parts of this section that will end in verse 12. And, and so uh, let's look at verse 11. He writes, for this gospel I was appointed a herald, an apostle, and a teacher. So the first truth I want to bring out for you this morning is simply this, that Jesus Christ is Lord. Okay? I, want to look, I want you to look, I'm going to, we're going to look at verse 11, then we're going to look at a verse in, in, in Acts 9 and a verse in, in Matthew 28. In each one I'm asking you in advance to look very closely at the language in them. Because in them, Jesus is taking a posture that we need to recognize, okay? Uh, verse 11, again, he says, for this gospel, I was appointed. So why was Paul a herald of the gospel? Why did he proclaim it wherever he went? Why was he an apostle of the other church? Why was he a teacher of the good news of Jesus? Because he was appointed. It wasn't offered to him. It wasn't suggested to him. It was appointed, right? And that, that implies authority. That implies that there's someone who can appoint. And listen to Jesus' own words about Paul in Acts 9. This is what Jesus said about Paul. He said, go, for this man is my chosen instrument to take my name to the Gentiles, the kings, and the Israelites. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. So again, Jesus is talking about the author of 2 Timothy there. He's talking about Paul. And, and language matters. Did Jesus say in Acts 9, I really hope he does these things. Like my wish for Paul is that he would take my name to the Gentiles. He's got a lot of options. I hope he chooses this one. 
It'd be great if he'd be willing to suffer me. Of course not. He said, this man is my chosen instrument. I'm calling the shots here. And that phrasing implies authority, implies power, implies command. And it's not bravado, by the way. He was clear about this in Matthew 28. Matthew 28, 18, Jesus brings his disciples close to him. Right before he gives them the Great Commission, this is what he says. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Again, look at the language. All authority. Over where? In heaven and on earth. So let's not complicate it. There is no authority left. Jesus Christ is Lord of all forever, hard period. Kings and governments have no authority over him. Culture has no authority over him. Your feelings and desires have no authority over him. He is Lord of all forever. There is nothing that Jesus' authority does not touch. There's nothing that Jesus' authority does not reign over. And Paul's entire life was changed because he recognized this to be true. And I want us to see the distinction just even here in 2 Timothy 1. Again, 9 and 10 are the verses that Adam covered for us last week. And they're talking about, and in in these verses, Paul is talking about Jesus in his role as Savior. Now, you need to know that Jesus Christ needs to be your Savior because there is no other one. Only he can save you. Only he can forgive you. Only he can grant you eternal life. And it's truly remarkable that he does, praise his name. But as Paul describes him in verses 9 and 10, what's the work Jesus is doing? Jesus is calling. Jesus is working in verse 9 according to his grace. In verse 10, he's, he's abolishing death and bringing life and immortality to those who believe. And we like all that stuff, don't we? Yes, Jesus, call me to your grace. Yes, cover me with, with, with the purchase of, of, of forgiveness uh, that you purchased on the cross and with your blood. Yes, forgive me of all my sins. Abolish death in my life. Give me immortality. We love this. It's all to our benefit. But what's he doing in verse 11? Now Jesus is appointing. We don't like that as much, do we? Because in that point, now there's a surrender of control. At that point, he might ask me for something I don't want to give him. At that point, he might ask me to do something I don't want to do. At that point, he might have a standard in his word that I'd rather not agree with or ignore. He might appoint me to something that doesn't match my vision or five-year plan for my life. And so we don't like it when he shifts into Lord. But here's the thing that we have to recognize. We cannot be saved apart from the authority of Jesus Christ. Not just anyone could die in our place and have it mean anything. Not just anyone could forgive us and have it count for anything. Not just anyone could grant us eternal life and it actually matter. Only the King of kings and Lord of lords can do those things. Only God in the flesh, only one with authority can actually save our souls. And so how selfish and belittling of us to recognize his authority only when it benefits us. We don't get that right. Yes, Jesus is Savior, praise his name. But he's Savior because he's King. He's Savior because he's Lord. He's Savior because he is the King of kings and Lord of lords, praise his name. And the only right response to that is to align under his authority. Secondly, we see here that Jesus is able. Right? Verse 11, Paul mentions that he was appointed by Jesus into this life of ministry. Verse 12, in, in, if you look at it, it starts really interesting. Because in the CSB, which I'm reading from, verse 12 starts with this. And that is why I suffer these things. Do you know what Paul is saying? He's being very overt about it. He's coming out and saying, the reason that I am suffering is because of what God told me to do. The reason that I'm in chains, the reason I'm about to die, the reason I've suffered immensely in my life is because of what Jesus told me to do. He's not hiding from it. And this verse provides this great insight into kind of his mind and character. So I want you for a second to put yourself in Paul's shoes as you would write this letter. 
For the entire second half of his life, he's given everything to Jesus Christ. He's never gotten married. He stayed celibate. He, he never settled anywhere. He's traveled constantly the known world, planting churches everywhere he went, telling all who would listen the gospel. He's been shipwrecked three different times. I don't know about you, after once, I'm not getting back on a boat, right? He's been beaten with rods three times. He's been whipped with lashes 39 times, five different times. Multiple times he's been left for dead. He's been, in 2 Corinthians 11, he writes, I was, I've been constantly in danger, constantly hungry, constantly cold and homeless. And the big prize at the end of all that, his big retirement package at the end of all that, is to spend his final days in a Roman dungeon. Worried for the churches he planted, worried for the people he invested in, knowing he's eventually going to be killed because of what Jesus told him to do. I don't know about you, but does that sound like your best life now? And so if you're like me, you have to wonder, at this point, facing all this, is he wavering at all? Is there any shred of doubt? Does he regret an ounce of this? And what we find in verse 12 is the most emphatic no. He does not regret a single ounce of suffering. He's not having a crisis of faith in any way. And why? He writes why. He says, I know whom I've believed. Do you know what he's saying there? He's saying, I know who I'm believed in. I know who I've trusted. I know who I'm riding with. And he is bigger than everything I've ever faced. He's bigger than my sins. He's bigger than my failings. He's bigger than my shortcomings. He's bigger than, than my sufferings and any cost I've paid. He's bigger than anything life could ever throw at me. And he goes on to say in verse 12, I not only do I know who I'm believed, but I know that he's able to guard that which has been entrusted to me until that day. And so he's saying, I know the Jesus that I've trusted, and I know he's able. He's able to deliver me. He's able to save me. He's able to bring me home. He's able to grant me a hope and a future that far outweighs everything I've experienced here. And he has not and is not and will not ever let me down. And Paul knows all this precisely because of the gospel that he was a herald of. Because on the cross and in his resurrection, Jesus defeated the greatest enemies we will ever face. The power of sin that curses us to death was conquered in Jesus Christ. The power of the enemy that accuses us was defeated by Jesus Christ. The power of death over the believer was vanquished by Jesus Christ. And with those enemies destroyed, a beating, right, an illness, an imprisonment, an unfulfilled desire, a thorn in the flesh, even an execution, those are nothing for him. Because he's already defeated our greatest foes. Everything else is easy for him. He's able. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is able. And the third thing Paul points out here is that he's trustworthy. I want you to note specifically what he's arguing in verse 12. He's not saying that Jesus can do these things. Right? It's not just that Jesus can save us. It's not that Jesus can overcome our challenges. It's not just that Jesus can give us a hope and future that outweighs all of us. Paul isn't saying that Jesus can. You know what he's saying? He's saying he will. He will do that. Because he knows who he has believed in. And he knows Jesus' character. And he knows who Jesus is. And once again, you need to know it's for this gospel, this gospel that informs us in him. How is Paul so sure that Jesus is trustworthy? Well, you don't have to look any further than the gospel. Isaiah 53, he was pierced, why? Because of our rebellion. He was crushed because of our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace, right, was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. 2 Corinthians 5, that God made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. And then Jesus' own words in John 10, this is why the Father loves me, 
because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. And here's the key verse. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own. Do you know on the cross, Jesus Christ willingly suffered and willingly took on suffering and death for us. He stepped into our place. He paid the price that we deserve to pay. The sinless son of God became our sin and absorbed the wrath of God that was due that sin. And not one person forced him to do this. No one made him do it. He did it on his own accord and his own volition, his own will. Hebrews says, for joy set before him, he did it. All for us. And that single act lays to rest any questions or concerns that we might have about certain aspects of Jesus. Never again do we have to have questions or concerns about his character. Somebody who's willing to do that for us is someone whose character is proven. Jesus Christ is for us. He's for our good. He has our best interests in mind. And we never have to question that, ever. Not after the cross. We never have to question or have concerns about his power. I mean, think about that day. He took the lashes from a whip that was designed to rip the skin right off his back. He took five to seven metal-inch spikes into his wrists and feet. He was hoisted on a cross, excruciatingly suffered for hours. He was brutally executed, facing not only the torment of the Roman soldiers, but the wrath of a holy, awesome, terrifying God that was, that was unleashing towards sin. And he took all of that on. And on the third day, rose from the dead in glorious power, defeating all of it. There's nothing that you and I will ever face that will ever amount to that. And so we never need to doubt his power or capability again. And we never need to have questions or concerns about his love. He has proven it over and over and over and over. Romans 5, God proves his own love for us in this. This is the proof. that While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 1 John 4, you want to know why we love? We love why? Because he first loved us. Never again, after what he has endured for us, after what he's made available to us in the gospel, do we ever have to question his love for us. Why? Because we know whom we've believed. We know who he is. We know that he's Lord. We know that he's able. We know that he's trustworthy. We know his character. We know his power. We know that he is love. And so why? Why, at at, at the end of his life, is Paul telling Timothy this? Why did God in his sovereign wisdom include this in his word? Well, certainly there are things that we can do with these truths, but there's, there's two specifically that I want to challenge you with to bring this to a close. And the first is simply this. I want to challenge you just to put it all on Jesus. When I was in college, uh, or shortly after, there's a, there's a new craze that hit, that hit the nation. It was new to me at least. See, in those days, uh, my TV was broken. The only channel that would work was ESPN. At least I think I never tried another channel, right? Um, but in that day, like ESPN started broadcasting something called the World Series of Poker. And they did a tremendous job of capturing sort of the, the nerves and the tension and drama of these events. And one ingenious thing they did was they, hide, they hid cameras all around the table so that you could know uh, the cards that each player had. And even the players at the table don't know this. And it made for great television. And for a while, it was a big ratings hit. But in this version they televised, what they played was a, a, a game called T- Texas No Limit Hold'em. And where the drama came in was on the no limit part, right? which meant the only limit to what you could bet was what you had. That's it. And so in this game, there's a move, a term called going all in. It, to go all in means to believe that you have such a good hand that you're willing to bet everything you have on it. Right? You're willing to put literally in, in these things, you're willing to put your tournament life on the line for this hand. I'm, I'm going all in. If another player called or matched your bet, they believe their hand was even better than yours. And so the most exciting hands were the all in hands because somebody was going home. Right? Somebody put, risked everything on it. Now, I open talking about proposals. If you think about it, proposals are a big bet. 
And my advice to you is make sure you have the yes, right? But what we need to understand this morning is this. The single greatest wager you will ever make is with your eternity. You're going to die. I hope that's not a spoiler alert for you. Every one of our lives on this earth will end. And if you want to know what happens after it, the Bible is very clear in this, whether you believe it or not. We will stand before the Lord and we will give an account for everything that we've ever done. Every act, every word, every thought. And the only defense, the only chance you will have in that moment is the blood of Jesus Christ. It's only by trusting in him, it's only by banking on him, it's only by putting your faith in him that you have any hope. Listen, right doctrine is important. A right doctrine will tell you what I just told you. Right doctrine, it matters that you know truth. It matters that you know your need for a savior. It matters that you know that Jesus can be your savior. But having the right understanding of doctrine won't save you. Salvation comes by placing your faith in Jesus Christ. He is your hope. He is your answer. He is your solution. He is your savior. So go all in with him. Now, I can only speak for me this morning, right? But I believe that there are a lot of people in here that would agree with me, that when I stand before the Lord one day and I give an account for my life, I will be guilty of every sin and every wrong thing I've done. I will be 100% guilty, right? And when it comes to my eternity, whether I spend the rest of time in perfection and bliss in heaven with God or, or in agony and torment in hell, what I am doing is I am banking everything on Jesus Christ. My trust is in him and him alone. It's in his death and resurrection to pay the price for my sins that I am guilty of. I'm trusting in nothing else. And if you have not yet, then trust me, it's time that you go all in. It's time that you push all your chips to the middle of the table. To stop trusting in your upbringing, to stop trusting in your church background, to stop trusting in your own sense of morality, stop trusting in some religious ceremony you went through, stop trusting on being the right side of history or, or in your parents' faith or in your church attendance or goodness and, and declare that my faith is in Jesus and Jesus and only Jesus. Because I stand before you as one who's certain today and convinced he's not going to let you down. So put it all on him. And then secondly... We should give it all to Jesus. This is that Savior Lord bridge that people don't want to cross. Right, where the first bridge is, is coming to accept Jesus Christ as Savior, to stop trusting in anything other than him for, for my salvation and eternity. The next hurdle, the next bridge is the one that even fewer are willing to cross. Which rightly seeing him is the Lord and authority over my life. And what I can tell you this morning is this, is that he's worthy of it. So I'm wondering... What part of your life are you keeping from him? It might be a sin that you know is wrong, you just don't want to give it up. It might be a relationship that you know is outside the bounds of his word, but you just don't want to cede him authority over it. It might be an identity that you have outside of him. It might be a cost that you don't want to pay. It might be something that you know he's asking you to do and you just don't want to do it. It might be a comfort that you're not willing to sacrifice. It might be a mindset shift that you're willing to refuse. It might be an attitude that you're just not going to let go of. It might be a consistent sin that you, instead of fighting against it, you're like, that's just who I am. Where, are, where is it that you're telling the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, you don't get authority here? You know that's a losing battle, right? He deserves it all. No one else does, especially us. And so whatever remains of your life, whatever remains of your heart that you have yet to surrender to his authority, I call myself, I call all of us to repent of that today. To lay those things down at the foot of the cross and to give it all to the one who gave it all for us. 
We've been given one life on this earth, one chance to connect with our creator, to find our purpose, to bring him glory, to prepare for eternity. And plan A must be to put our hope in Jesus alone, to trust our eternity to him alone, and to live a life of service and devotion to him and his mission. And there can't be a plan B. There can't be. And I want you to imagine as we close this today, I want you to imagine the day that you're gonna stand before a holy, awesome God at the end of your earthly life. And his righteousness and his terrifying holiness will demand an answer for every sin, every rebellion, every shortcoming you had. And the question I have for you is what are you gonna plead? What's gonna be your answer? What are you gonna offer in your defense? Put it all on Jesus and then give it all to him. Let's pray. So as, as we close this in prayer, as we head into our response time, I wanna, I wanna do a little bit of a guided time of prayer to close today. And so with every head bowed, every eyes closed, there's just two questions I wanna challenge you to bring before the Lord in prayer this morning. And so we're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna bring these before him. I'm gonna, I'm gonna challenge you to pray them and ask them, and then we're gonna sit for a few moments and, and await his response. And so the very first question that I want you, I'm challenging you this morning to take before the Lord is simply this. Are you trusting in anything other than Jesus for your salvation? The Bible says in Ephesians 2 that you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not of works. This is not of anything that you could have ever done, lest we could boast. And Hebrews 11 says that without faith, it's impossible to please God. And so maybe it's, Maybe it's a ceremony you went through as, as, a, as a child. Maybe it's an, an upbringing. Maybe it's a, uh, an identity you had through your, your family's faith. Maybe it's something. Are you trusting in anything other than Jesus for your salvation? And if you are, I'm gonna ask, I'm gonna challenge you to lay that down and go all in with him. So take a few moments and ask the Lord that. you're still wrestling with that one, stay there. Don't move on until you come to a place of complete surrender to Jesus Christ. And for the rest of you who've done that, the question I want you to take before the Lord today is this. What aren't you giving to Jesus and his authority? It's not right for us to pick and choose where he's king. It's not right for us to pick and choose where he gets to call the shots and where he doesn't. So where is it in your life that you're withholding from him? Where is it in your life that you're not submitting to him? Where is it in your life that you're consciously blocking out his voice, ignoring what he would say, ignoring what he would want you to do? Where is it that you just haven't surrendered and submitted to him? Ask the Lord to identify those areas for you now.
Father, the reason that we need grace is because there's such a huge gap between who we are and who we've been called to be in you. Because we fall so short of the standard of your authority. And so I pray this morning that you, you would identify for us anything that we're trusting in other than Jesus Christ for our salvation. And Lord, if there's anybody in here doing that, they would quickly shed those. They would quickly shed those identities, those idols, those things that they are banking on for their eternity, and they would go all in with you. And then, God, I ask that you would identify for us areas that we are withholding from you, areas that we're not submitting to, areas that we haven't surrendered to, areas in our life and heart and character and attitude that we just are not letting you influence. And Lord, these might be things that we've held on to for years. These might be things that we find identity in. These might be idols that are secured in our hearts. But God, by the power of your spirit, may we lay those down today. May we invite your power. May we invite your authority. May we invite your influence. May we repent of them and turn to you for the forgiveness and grace that you pour out on us every single day. May we surrender our control to you. God, would you do this not just for our sake, for the sake of, of those that will come across, for the sake of those that you want to use us to be spreaders and sharers of your glory so that more and more and more people may come to know you, more and more people may trust in Jesus and in Jesus alone for salvation. And that you would get the glory from all this. And we pray this in his powerful name. Sing one more time to get that stand and worship.